Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Audiobook Club for the month of October 2016. I'm Katie Waldman, Slate's Words Correspondent, and I'm joined in the D.C. studio today by Megan Wiegand, Slate's Copy Chief. Hey, Meg. Hello. And by Nora Kaplan-Bricker, a writer and critic at Slate and elsewhere. Hey, Nora. Hi. Today, we're going to discuss Shrill, Notes from a Loud Woman, a collection of first-person essays by the comic and critic Lindy West. In Shrill, West examines contemporary womanhood and feminism from a variety of angles, recounting her transformation from a timid, fantasy-loving kid to the all-caps defender of body positivity and router of internet trolls we know from Jezebel, This American Life, and The Guardian. Um, so I wanted to start, you guys, because West has a cult following online, and I actually saw her speak at Kramer Books a few months ago, and the room was overflowing. People waited in a line for more than an hour to talk to her, and it was just clear that she has this really fervent fan base. Um, so I wanted to ask you guys, like, what your relationship with Lin- Lindy West was before you picked up the book and what you were expecting and whether the book sort of lined up with what you thought you were going to get. So Nora, maybe you first, because I know you reviewed uh, Shrill. I did. Um, And I think the book, in answer to your question, was sort of exactly what I was expecting on a lot of levels. And I think exactly what the sort of diehard fans who would line up outside Kramer books to hear her speak would be coming to find. It's kind of her very characteristic voice, a lot of all caps, as you mentioned, very sort of adrenalized and hilarious and biting, but also affirming and unabashedly feminist and kind of calling her readers to arms to make the world a better place. Sort of all the characteristics of her blocky writing are in here. And I think it's partly because she does sort of draw heavily from some of her greatest hits going all the way back to her days at The Stranger in Seattle, but definitely drawing from her time at Jezebel, some of the things she published in The Guardian. So I think diehard fans will even find pieces and phrases that they recognize in here. Um, I'd definitely been reading West since I was in 
college, I guess, before I came to this book. And as a person who writes pretty regularly on women's issues, had read her pretty frequently, but I still felt like seeing everything lined up and, and sort of chronologically and thematically organized in the book, there was sort of more to the arc of her career and, and things that I didn't even realize I had kind of missed about her work. Yeah. What about you, Meg? I actually uh, have not been a big Lindy West fan for a long time. I, you know, I'd read her work occasionally on Jezebel or now The Guardian. But when I heard about her book coming out, I, I kind of assumed it was one of many of these lady books that have come out in recent. Uh, Jessica Valenti's comes to mind, um, the various single ladies books that have come out. And I thought, okay, it's another data point in this series of books that I've enjoyed and maybe I'll check it out. And then I listened to the This American Life episode where her, the, the whole episode centered around her story and various versions of what does it mean to be fat? What does weight mean? You know, this whole question that she gets at. And I was blown away by that episode. So I immediately went home and got the book and started reading. And I've gone back and read some of her stuff, mostly on The Guardian. Um, but I, I'm not the the fangirl that a lot of other people are. Yeah. I mean, and I do think that, like, going straight to the weight issue, like, that is where she feels especially refreshing and unique. Um, I feel like that's where her voice is something that we don't hear from the Jessica Valentes. And I don't know if you're thinking of, like, bossy pants and the sort of female comic memoirs, too, yeah. which I think this book draws on a little bit. But I think the way that she writes about being a fat woman is – it's beautiful. It is poignant. It's powerful. It's compassionate. And I also think that that's sort of like her grand theme. I could read her on that forever. Nora, do you have like a favorite subject area for Lindy? <laughs> or I mean, how how do you feel about the way she treats uh, weight issues? Yes, I really have to agree that I think the best parts of this book in particular, that when you read the essays or chapters or sort of hybrid essay chapters about weight and about fat acceptance and her body. The rest of the book, and I think this is one of the things I feel mixed about about the book, that the rest of the book to me kind of can't hold a candle to how incredible those sections are. Um, and there are a few chapters or essays interspersed over the course of the book where she's talking about weight. And there's this one incredible section right in the middle of the book where she sort of lists, I hate being fat because, and then I love being fat because. And yes, this is beautiful. This is uh, page 77. Do you want to read some of that for us? Yes, I, I do. Um, it's the section where she says, I also love being fat. The breadth of my shoulders makes me feel safe. I am unassailable. I am intimidate. I am a polar icebreaker. I walk and climb and lift things. I can open your jar. I can absorb blows, literal and metaphorical, men for other women, smaller women, breakable women, women who need me. And she goes on, and there's this incredible part of this passage where she says, maybe you are thin. You hike that trail, and you're fit and beautiful and wanted, and I'm so proud of you. I'm so in awe of your wiry brightness, and I'm miles behind you, my breathing ragged. But you didn't carry this up the mountain. You only carried yourself. How hard would you breathe if you had to carry me? You couldn't, but I can. And that that passage and the writing that sort of achieves that level in this book, I mean, I couldn't agree more that I, I just don't think there's anyone else who writes about size the way that Wes does. And she's 
really, she's a poet of this material, and she's also an activist um, leading on this subject. And I think it's just the best part of the book for me by far when she gets into her, like, her sort of unique philosophy of fat as a feminist issue. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, I just felt like this is a frontier for her, like this, and this is a a frontier for us. Like, fat acceptance is not mainstream. But I just feel like the other feminist issues that she addresses while she, you know, does due diligence and she's a very eloquent and persuasive uh, writer and crafter of arguments, they just didn't feel... um, as new and urgent to me as as those sections, and I agree with you that the the sort of lyricism that creeps in, that creeps into her tone and her language there is like really thrilling. And I also feel that you know some of the personal uh, chapters with uh, you know meeting her husband or, or her about her dad. I, I love the story of her two parents, her mom who kind of bequeaths her grit and her dad who gives her idealism. Those sort of more personal and distinct tones for me were more effective than the kind of like rah-rah, you know, let's get rid of period stigma chapters. I think her writing, even on issues like abortion, where that's kind of like the bread and butter of what she does, she makes some really good points, but it is more similar to sort of what we've read elsewhere about, you know, she has this great line of, you know, everything happened for me in the five years after my abortion. She met her husband, her career took off. I I think that stuff is good, but it just doesn't have quite the same level of, of like, take your breath away originality and nuance that her writing about size and fat as a feminist issue does. I almost felt at some points like I was reading two different books where there's this one, um, for instance, the second chapter or essay, whatever you want to call it, Bones was my favorite, where she talks about beauty standards and she makes this beautiful sentence about um, how the clavicle is the most beautiful body part and how that's the standard by all women, how all women are judged. I mean, it was just a, it was a gorgeous chapter on so many levels um, about how women are defined by their bodies. And then you get to something like the, the comedy the, the comedy chapters where she talks about mm-hmm. the rape jokes and or the rape insults and all of that where, I mean, they're both great reads and they were both fascinating and ardently feminist, but they almost felt – they almost didn't feel – like they felt like two separate books. Yeah. Well, to me, it almost seemed like she's got such a powerful and great and funny and inventive voice and like those chapters when she was just sort of retelling things that had happened to her on other platforms or like in her past or, you know, here's an email exchange that I had with Dan Savage and here's like a thing that happened when I appeared on this comedy show. They just felt like a voice in search of material, in search of a subject. And the subject felt a little bit arbitrary, like, oh, I guess I could tell this somewhat self-contained story about a thing that happened to me. But it, it almost felt like all right, I need some more chapters to flesh out um, my book, which, you know, keeps its heart in these chapters about, you know, the bones and, and like, my parents. Um, and so those those chapters that were more, like, here's the thing that I could tell you about that happened one time, um, they, I, you know, I didn't connect to those as well. I think um, one of the things you guys both mentioned, the This American Life episodes, and I, I feel... One of the things I sort of struggled with in making sense of the book was how some of the things that worked so well for me in in those radio formats, such as the chapter about confront, confronting her troll and the back and forth with Dan Savage that you mentioned, Katie, 
I really couldn't get into those as chapters, and I sort of went back and listened to them as more journalistic radio segments and tried to puzzle out what's going on there. And I think, to your point, sometimes it just feels like there's just too much sort of back and forth with herself in those chapters. Like they needed a good edit or they needed to be distilled more to the the point that she's trying to make because there, there will be this sort of long exchange with another person where some of the same points are being made multiple times. And it was just sort of frustrating as a reader to go from these exquisite chapters to a chapter like that and sort of ricochet back and forth between the more diffuse parts of the book and the the really beautifully condensed ones. Yeah. And I think also her training as a blogger shows through there because in blogging, as you guys both know, um, it's a lot of reiteration of the same themes in slightly different ways based on like whatever inspiring news event or precipitating thing happens. And so you can sort of see her getting out her lines and making the same arguments and sort of rehearsing the, the same points, um, in an argument with Dan Savage. So yeah, I agree. I think like there's an interesting thing going on with form when you, when you are used to blogging and then you, try to put that in a book and what seems totally natural um, in one medium is just like a little bit, it, it doesn't quite feel as satisfying in a book. I don't know if you guys had that impression too, though. I mean, I definitely felt that way. And like, I, I feel that way partly, I think, because there's a sort of assumption with a blog that it's it doesn't necessarily have to be built to last, that the, a lot of it's going to sort of disappear into the internet, or it's going to be really hard to find it in five years. And with a book, you feel that you should be able to pick it up later and return to it and remember why you possess this object. Um, and I know we don't always think about books that way anymore, but I just, it felt sort of frustrating to me that this book, there were parts of it that were good enough to want to keep absolutely forever, but the book as a full entity didn't totally feel built to last to me in the way that I want a book to feel, um, if that makes sense. Did you feel that way, Meg? Yeah. And I think that goes back to me feeling like it was two separate books where there are certain chapters that, yeah, I want to pull out and I want to bookmark those and keep those forever. And there's others that are like, okay, that was a good read. I don't need to need to revisit this ever. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, one thing that she kept coming back to is like, I didn't choose these subjects. They sort of chose me because she says, you know, I was uh, into fantasy. I wanted to write about real trolls. I wanted to write about wizards. Um, and she has a great line. Like, I wanted to write about the erotically meaty, meaty forearms of like George Foreman or something. Um, and it seems almost like she got backed into a corner because she noticed sexism and then she wrote protest posts about it. And then she got a lot of harassment. And then she had to keep calling out the harassers. And it exploded into this uh, beat that she just had to keep writing on. And I wondered, like, do you guys think that did that seem like a plausible uh, account of how she got on this feminism beat that she just sort of rose her voice one time, and then it all just sort of like snowballed? I, I mean, one of the things that I sort of struggled with in that narrative was that it felt to me like it could be presented in a range of, of slightly conflicting ways, which to me was, was part of my sort of ongoing 
sense of disorientation and whether this was a book of discrete pieces or a memoir, because sometimes it seemed to me that that she really you know presented it in the way that you're saying as kind of you know this is a burden, this is sort of exhausting to me. You know, there's one chapter that I think she ends by saying, "I don't know if I'll ever be able to get back to work." because she sort of spent all her time sending off individual trolls. But then there are other chapters, like the one that you mentioned about her parents, where it kind of feels as if she's setting herself up as as almost sort of fated to cover this beat or as a perfect person in a way, because she is both idealistic and gritty to, to fend off these trolls and fight this fight. And it's not that you can't be both, but I, I sort of wish that the book would come to a bit more of a resolution with itself about, you know, what, how she felt about this material finding her, if, if in fact it did. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Maybe we can talk a little bit about the structure because it, I mean, it's kind of this interconnected series of essays that are loosely chronological, right? So um, there's, I mean, it starts with her being young and shy and, and embarrassed about her body and sort of goes through this like epiphany where she's looking at women online. Like uh, she's going to, I can't remember the name of the website, but it's basically like fat women trying on clothes and looking great. And she sort of, floods her herself with these images and begins to find them beautiful and that sort of sets her on a different path and you know as the book progresses it goes through meeting her husband and other things that happen to her as her career develops and I guess Nora in your review you pointed out that it's a little bit um it's a little bit unclear whether she's organizing things by theme or by chronology and that didn't really bother me, but it seemed like it might have bothered you a little bit. It did. I think that, so I think I really struggled to put my finger on why I didn't walk away from this book more satisfied um, when I was sitting down to write that review. And I think, I mean, I think you're right that there's not inherently anything wrong with sort of sometimes being thematic and sometimes being chronological. I think I just sort of wanted the book to commit to either being essays that were somehow thematically related or being a memoir. Um, and, you know, it, it sort of at the beginning felt more like blog posts to me. Um, and by the end felt much more like a memoir. Um, and I think I, I liked it more and more as it went along, but then I sort of looked back from the very memoiristic, very chronological end of the book at the beginning and sort of wondered, why did it start where it started? And would it, you know, would I feel like I had completed more of a journey if it had started somewhere else? Um, so I think that was sort of my, I think it's sort of the same issue that we've been circling this whole conversation of the book being somewhat inconsistent. But I think my fundamental frustration with it was was more that than the than anything else. I'm curious for you guys, as I, I, 
work at Slate but do not write regularly. Um, and among those reasons are I am terrified of trolls. So as two women who write on the internet regularly, did you guys feel – like when you were reading her chapters about all the threats she was getting and, and being a woman online and having this presence and, and, and being a woman with a, an opinion on the internet, did you guys connect with that or were you – did you feel differently than how, what she was talking about? Yeah, I can – I feel a lot of, um, I guess, gratitude to to women like Lindy West or I think someone like Amanda Hess who used to cover these issues First Slate or Michelle Goldberg, who writes about them regularly for Slate now, as well as writing about politics. I think the vitriol that women get on the internet is really overwhelming. And I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I get like a tiny, tiny fraction of what Lindy West must get when I write about some of the issues that are in here, you know, especially abortion and um, reproductive rights. But I, it always bothers me. I don't really feel like I can let it slide off me. Um, and so it was definitely interesting to learn that doesn't really slide off of her either. And that clearly this is something that sort of torments her and she continues to do it anyway. And I think that made me feel sort of deeply sad and and kind of concerned about the state of um, women in journalism while also feeling a little relieved that it's not, it's not me. It's like, this is just human. You can't really take all this abuse without feeling it kind of assimilated into your person in some way. So um, but I was sort of surprised by that. I would have thought that she would have, you know, after all these years, maybe she just kind of didn't care it anymore. But that clearly isn't the case. Yeah. I think uh, something that resonated with me is like the very specific feeling of of seeing yourself judged by a yardstick that you don't subscribe to or that you don't honor as like a suitable or credible way to measure someone and yet still like finding yourself under the spell of that type of judgment and like hating yourself for it. Like when I get, um, I don't know, when I get online trollery that's like, you're ugly, you're fat, like, you know, like the good feminist in me is like, so what? <laughs> um, that's not what matters in a human being. And my value system tells me that like, if I am kind and smart and like help people or do my job or whatever, like those are the things that should matter. And yet there's like this incredible sort of disempowering, almost gotcha thing that happens when someone insults you in a way that you don't want to sting and it does. And she talks about that in one passage where she says, like, you know, I didn't have internal insecurities. I just had the external world telling me that I wasn't worthy. And that was really striking to me because I am not blessed with that same inner confidence. But um, the idea of just like, absorbing and receiving all of these messages and trying to figure out like which ones should be believed and listened to and which ones are noise like it's not easy to make those kinds of judgments all the time and especially when you get a lot of them as she does um i can imagine it's just kind of a disorienting and confusing experience and that was that was actually the one way that those chapters that we talked about earlier that were these essays about various feminism, weight, body image, and all that, and the way that the more storytelling chapters connected for me is when I read the storytelling cha- storytelling chapters, uh, it was like, okay, 
she's going through this. She feels bothered by this. This is a struggle for her. So I can put on my big girl panties and I can follow her in this lead, which is very much how the the chapters that we talked about earlier that, that were like just very connecting and – you know, pick me up and all right, I got this. Like that's how those two sections – that is the one place those two s- sections connected for me is this, the stories did give this weight that was like, all right, we're all going through this. We can all get through this even if, you know, I'm not getting harassed by internet trolls in my day-to-day job. Well, she does a really good job of connecting various – seemingly isolated forms of sexism, like saying it's all the same iceberg. So like me getting this harassment on Twitter is the same as like you getting catcalled on the street or your male boss, you know, not giving you a raise or whatever because you're a woman. Um, Not that that is something that happens at Slate, hopefully. Um, But yeah, I mean, Nora, do you do you feel that I mean, you use the word affirming to talk about uh, Lindy West's writing and her voice, which I think is really good because she does have this, like, very intimate and friendly tone that is – it's, like, legitimately inspiring. Like, you do sort of put down the book and think, like, all right, we're going through it together and we can do it and we're strong and, like, we are women, hear me roar, us roar. (laughs) And, like, you know, I would have – found that cloying, I think, in a lot of contexts. But for her, um, she manages to make it really appealing. Yeah, I think there's this really great, it's just a sort of throwaway sentence, but I loved it so much and underlined it in so many colors of pen, where she's talking, again, about self-image and size. But I think this is kind of indicative of the tone of her writing about feminism in general. And she says, um, I'm not saying there's no graceful way to commiserate about self-image and body hate across size privilege lines, addressing thin women about sort of talking to fat women about weight and commiserating about weight. She says, Solidary, solidarity with other women is one of my drugs of choice, but please tread lightly. And I think there's there's that sense throughout the book that her feminism is a sort of feminism of solidarity. And it's solidarity with all her readers. It's solidarity with fat women and thin women, with men as well, with people who think she's funny and people who are coming for the more serious stuff. That so there's just there is this kind of like inclusivity that is maybe rarer than it should be in the space of online feminist blogging. Um, and for someone who's so sharp and witty, uh, she could probably get away with being sort of less nice to her readers and making some jokes at our expense, but I feel that she just never, never does that. Um, and that to me is also something that kind of unites the book, that it's it's a story of someone who underneath it all is kind of a, a really empathetic and in a lot of ways vulnerable person kind of learning to be shrill, as she puts it in the title, but learning to be loud, learning to be outspoken because she thinks that it's worthwhile and kind of the only way to live her life as the person she wants to be. So I think there is that kind of overarching um, theme of of self-affirmation and of kind of reaching out and wanting to include the reader in that, um, which really did work for me in the book. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. It really felt it almost felt like I was sitting down with a friend and having this this conversation with this person maybe I hadn't talked to in a while who was smart and funny and we were going on about all these different issues. Like the, the, her the, her style of writing just drew me in and made it very easy easy to f- just keep going, keep going. And I I don't think I've ever said this book like about any book ever. I loved her footnotes. Yeah. Um I <laughs> I am a copy editor and I like cutting anything that is extraneous or distracting, but I loved her footnotes. It was like a talking to a friend and getting on a tangent and enjoying that tangent and then like, oh, right, let's go back to the previous conversation. But I thought her footnotes were wonderful and I actually wanted more of them, which, again, isn't something I never thought I would say about a book. Yeah. I mean, I also think that there's something in her inclusivity and her sort of wild tangents, just like her out there-ness. It's it's almost like a political act. Like Lindy West being brave is like for the benefit of us all, you know? Like she has yeah. this brash persona, but like the reason that she is out there, you know, on the edges, on the on the front lines is so that other people can follow her. And I do think that there's like this fundamental generosity even in the most sort of like you know, flamboyant gestures and the most quote unquote shrill uh, moments. And she calls herself an unflappable human vuvuzela or vuvuzela. <laughs> what is that um, horn instrument that vuvuzela? Yes. <laughs> And it's brilliant, um, but also those are instruments that cheer that cheer people on. Um, so it's like an even more adept metaphor than it originally seemed. I almost struggled with because she get, she goes into the chapter where she talks about where do you get your confidence and asking mm-hmm. that question of a fat woman who she lays out like you know fat women get this question like we're not supposed to have it and there was a great line about uh, being a shark running an orange Julius um, <laughs> the just a weird question to ask so it was weird to walk away where I'm reading that chapter and like I just or I, I, the whole book I just I walked away being like okay I can do this it's very much a rah rah but it felt in somewhat in contrast with that chapter of. You shouldn't be asking me where I got my conf- – I don't know where I'm going with this. No, I agree because actually – and I felt called out and I felt bad as a reader because one of the things that I had been marveling at was her sort of effervescence and, yeah, her confidence. Right. And I was like, it is so cool. Like how does she – how did – and I think I just sort of admire confident people in general. But like she is someone who moves through the world with such – poise and uh, sort of conviction and energy and humor and it comes through in the book and I you know I I hope that if I had met her I wouldn't have said like where do you get your confidence but it's remarkable and I do actually if I'm honest I don't see a whole lot of like people who self-identify as fat and then say and I'm confident like that's just not what you see in society and it's it's more radical than it seems i think i mean i even think like like she says and i and i guess part of me reading that was fearing that oh my god i would have asked her that question right. which is yeah. there's that but i also like i look around just among my friends and the women i know who are wonderful beautiful people and not many of them they're they're phenomenal, but I don't see them rocking this confidence that Lindy West has. Yeah. So I'm not. I think that's one thing that she misses is that I think she, her confidence is very unique. I think for yeah. for women. So 
That's, I mean, that's an interesting critique of, of that chapter then. It, it's, you know, it's actually more of a fair question because she's assuming that everyone has this sort of glowing kernel of confidence within and they just need to activate it. But actually, it's more of an open question. Where do you get your confidence? It is not universal. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I think that – That's I think really – I had not thought of that before, but that's, that's really interesting. That's like a fundamental disconnect between the Lindy West worldview and the – possible reader worldview. And maybe I just only hang out with people who are trying their hardest to be confident. And <laughs> But I, I just – I feel like when I see any woman, regardless of shape, size, color, age, whatever, who is rocking confidence, I, I look at her. I'm like, can I follow you around and study you? Because I want <laughs> to learn confidence. Yeah. I think that's one of those moments in the book where – or one of those sort of threads through the book where I would have liked to see right? – I sort of wish that it were a little bit more – of a memoir in a way, because I think the book isn't that good on how Lindy West becomes Lindy West. And you kind of, or I kind of partly pick up this type of book to sort of get a window into that and spy a little bit on how this person I admire managed to do the things that they've done. Um, And there's a strange chapter in the book called How to Stop Being Shy in 18 Easy Steps, which, I mean, parts of that chapter are very, very funny. I was sort of like losing myself completely on the couch when I read the part about this totally bonkers press release that she wrote for a band that was completely unusable and how they quietly sent her a check and never spoke to her again. But the chapter includes sentences like, everyone is different, advice is a game of chance, why would what changed me change you? So she's sort of, it's set out as this sort of advice, you know, here's how you become this confident person like Lindy West, but she's saying, I don't know how to tell you how I became me and how you could also be this brave, just sort of do some crazy stuff and deal with the embarrassment and maybe that will also work for you. So I think that's a really valid critique of the book that um, it doesn't really, like, there's some sort of, like, introspection missing or, or she doesn't even know somehow how she kind of withstands what she does on the internet or how she managed to become the unflappable Vuvuzela that she is. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting chapter, too, because it's kind of a formal experiment. It sort of harks back to or harkens back to um, the first chapter where she has kind of like a turbocharged listicle of the fat role models that were available to her as a kid. Um, And also super funny, like, I'm looking for this one part. She's describing the Queen of Hearts, and she says, She is, now now that I think about it, the perfect feminazi caricature. Fat, loud, irrational, violent, overbearing, constantly hitting a hedgehog with a flamingo. Oh, shit. She taught me everything I know. (laughs) Um, Which is hilarious. Anyway, so she does these uh, kind of... um, juiced up listicles um, and the how to stop being shy in 18 easy steps is another instance of that where sort of like the normal memoir um, kind of looks more like a blog or some form of internet writing. Um, but what was weird about the tone of this chapter for me is like you, Nora, I think I was hoping that she would sort of take that premise seriously. Like, um, you know, this is a joking format, but like, here are ways to actually stop being shy. And it just seemed like she was clowning around a little bit, which was hilarious and entertaining. But yeah, it, it didn't seem, I guess, deep. And clearly she wasn't trying to be deep, but 
I don't know. Yes, I, that's a very convoluted way of saying I agree. It almost felt to me like it could have been renamed 18 tweets about mm-hmm. stupid things I did on a given day or whatever. Like it, it, I felt like it tapped into that tendency for us to tweet our our most embarrassing moments looking for some kind of justification or something. I don't yeah. – maybe not justification, but just – I know I have a, I know I have a tendency whenever I do something dumb to tweet about it. And that's what this chapter felt like to me was – Right. It, it felt like the things that you had done after you had already done the 18 easy steps that made you no longer shy and then you did a bunch of silly things and was like, haha, this is funny. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. I worry that we're giving readers the impression that um, – or I'm worried that I'm giving readers the impression or listeners the impression that I did not like this book as much as I did because I really did like it a lot and I think she's a wonderful writer. I mean, were there any passages that you guys just wanted to uh, throw out there as worthy of lingering over? I mean, not to return to Bones, but I read that chapter probably three, four, five times while – I just I, I couldn't uh, that one and you're so brave. Those two yeah. chapters were just for me that those two chapters are the whole reason to read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're just such beautiful passages. I could have read 500 pages of her writing on these two topics, but um, for me, I mean, it's it, I thought it was wonderfully funny. It was easy to read. It, w- it was just a it was a all around enjoyable book. Mm-hmm. Nora, what about you? I would add to that list a chapter that we have not talked about yet, which is the one about. Um, her wedding and the marriage proposal from her husband, which it's almost verbatim a piece that ran in The Guardian, but it's this sort of great anecdotal manifesto about why a big over-the-top public proposal to a fat woman is a radical act. And in the whole extended genre of feminist women sort of making sense of the rituals around marriage in a way that it's their values. This is just one of my favorite entries ever, and I loved it when it was in The Guardian. And I think it also, of all the sort of repurposed things from her internet writing, it's one of the ones that worked the best in the context of the book for me. Um, so I, I think that, and it's, again, it's on this her sort of best topic and in that same vein with Bones and You're So Brave. Um, but I think it's a really great, like, capstone on that topic for the book. I also thought the chapter When Life Gives You Lemons was really good, which was about her abortion. Um, and it reminded me directly of one of my favorite lady books, to keep abusing that term, um, How to Buy, How to Be a Woman by Catelyn Moran, where she talks about her abortion and how abortion is perceived as this radical and, and devastating event in your life. And, Cat, and Catelyn just completely rejects that and says no. And when I let, read Lindy West's book, it, it – it almost seemed a direct echo of that. And I believe there was a whole hashtag started around that Lindy West started a whole – Shout your abortion. Yeah. Um, but I, I just really appreciated that chapter as a, hey, this is a totally normal thing. Here's my story. And I think we need more of that. Mm-hmm. So I was really glad to see that in there. Yeah. And actually just to return to the um, the proposal for a second, one kind of broader takeaway or insight that I got from this book was just sort of how all-encompassing um, our bodies can be. So, like, you know, you 
hear you read a writer who says, I'm fat and that's my reality. And then you don't follow that to all the different conclusions. Like this is what it means to get on a plane. This is what it means to sit in a chair. This is what it means to get a proposal. This is what it means to be the person on the playground who isn't picked. This is the person who is, you know, pointed to. She has this one line that says, I was the girl that the boys on the playground pointed to and said, that's your girlfriend to gross each other out, which is just like so cruel and horrible. And I just think it's incredibly brave and incredibly original to meticulously log all of those small sort of seemingly inconsequential experiences and put them together and weave them into a tapestry that becomes this book. And then people read it and say, wow, this adds up to like a really horrible thing. Um, the, the bigotry that, that she's faced and that other people face. Um, and I just, I found it really moving. Yeah. And I, I think that, um, I really agree with that. And I think the portrayal of her relationship really wonderful in that context also, because she does sort of talk about another moment that kind of fits into that tapestry. She talks about how people just don't believe that she and her husband are a couple because he's more conventionally attractive in her eyes and she thinks in the eyes of the world. Um, and women walk up to him and hit on him in front of her. And and that's, I think, just another of those small or not so small humiliations that she, in spite of that, or maybe because of learning to live in that world, she has this sort of beautiful, triumphant life that she really celebrates. Um, in the final few chapters of this book. And so I think that kind of returns to the, for me, the really affirming quality of the book and why the book manages to go to some of these really dark places and then deliver a pretty beautiful, moving portrait of of a life and of sort of loving yourself and finding people who love you for who you are as well. All right. I'm just going to go around and we should just say to listeners whether we'd recommend the book. And I will start and say, yes, yes, you should read this. It's great. Yes, I would I would definitely this is well worth your time. I'd be curious for I'd encourage male listeners in particular yes. to read it. Um, I think it is a wonderful book for women, but I would it would be even more beneficial for more men to read it. Indeed. So put it on your uh, curriculum, guys. It's it's assigned. Yeah, I second both of those recommendations and I think that is a great point. Um, this book is not the vegetables of feminism. It's a great deal of fun for readers of all gendered persuasions. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much, Katie. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audio Book Club in the iTunes store and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Jason DeLeon. And thanks for the assist, Afim Shapiro. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. For Meg Wiegand and Nora Kaplan-Berker, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening.